For The Wireless Age, a magazine dedicated to the wonders of the invention of Marconi, there could be no greater testimony to the virtues of the wireless in February 1916 than the story of the SS Thessaloniki. How the art was employed to keep other craft in touch with a ship that was saved, lost, found, and finally abandoned. The devotion to duty of three Marconi operators in time of stress, and the rescue that which followed days of hardship and peril was their triumphant title. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story? The Thessaloniki calls for help. Here we are. Enjoy! The Thessaloniki had started her life as part of the Ellerman Line in 1890, had originally flown the British flag, and carried the name of the city of Vienna. In 1913, the 2,895-ton steel screw steamer was sold to the Greek Line and renamed the Thessaloniki. While under the ownership of the Ellerman Line, she had a reputation for being a well-built and well-maintained ship. And once she had joined the Greek line, she had the honor of having the largest engines of any Greek merchant ship of the time. How well these engines had been maintained by her new owners would eventually become a matter for the courts. The Thessaloniki had begun what would be her final voyage on the 29th of October with 215 passengers on board, 90 crew, as well as a hold full of mixed cargo. It was the middle of World War I, and there was a large demand for shipping. No ship leaving any port was likely to have to hunt for a load. She was under the command of Captain Gulandis, and it was his first voyage in this position. Her route was intended to take her from her home port in Athens, through the Straits of Gibraltar, and then to New York. The ship passed through the Straits of Gibraltar without incident but almost as soon as they were through, and had set their course to bring them to New York, they met with stormy weather. In addition, the ship now began to experience engine trouble, and they did not arrive at the Azores until the 21st of December, well behind what had been hoped or expected from the voyage when they left Athens. It would become worse. On reaching the Azores, they hit on a far worse gale than the poor weather they had already been experiencing. By some accounts, it was a hurricane. For twelve hours, the ship was tossed around by the waves while her engine rooms and boiler began to flood due to a leak that had been created by the strength of the storm. They were concerned enough by this development that they sent out an SOS. This message was answered by an Italian ship named Stampalia. The message received by the Stampalia was dire enough that they rushed to the side of the Thessaloniki, arriving alongside her around midnight. The two ships were only able to communicate through wireless due to the poor weather conditions. But in this way, 
the Stampalia was told that the pumps on the Thessaloniki were now working, and it did not seem as though the ship would need assistance after all. Still concerned, the Stampalia remained with the Thessaloniki through the night until they were messaged around 8 in the morning that the water had been entirely cleared from the engine and boiler rooms, and the Thessaloniki intended to resume her voyage. The Thessaloniki was still listing to port, but the weather seemed as though it was improving. And the Stampalia left her go her own way, since the Thessaloniki seemed in no danger. A passenger would later tell the newspapers that when the passengers had seen the Stampalia, some of them had been asked to be transferred to the Italian ship rather than continue their voyage on the damaged Thessaloniki, but that Captain Gulandis had refused their request. The poor weather was not done, though. They continued to meet with storms from the 22nd through the 26th. And this rough weather opened up new leaks, which, again, flooded the boilers and engine rooms, and the coal bunkers began to fill with water. Meanwhile, the voyage had lasted longer than expected, and supplies were beginning to run out. On Christmas Day, the meat ran out. Only a few gallons of water remained, and everyone was on short rations, as the ship's officers did what they could to make them last. On the 26th, the storm managed to break the aerial for the wireless, and broke into the wireless rooms, also carrying away the batteries that powered the set. The operators of wireless scrambled to do repairs, with the wireless set now powered directly by the ship's dynamo and the aerial patched into position. The ship's pumps were no longer working. The passengers and crew had to work together to bail out the ship. The storm had also carried away one of the ship's lifeboats. The passenger who gave his account to the papers said that some of the passengers and members of the crew, as a collective group, went to Captain Gulandis and asked him to send out an SOS. But he met them with indignation, saying that he was in command of the ship and knew his business. The crew was becoming progressively concerned, though, and soon all of them, with the exception of the first engineer and two of the sailors, once again went to Captain Gulandis and asked that he call for help. He refused once again. With the shrinking supplies also a source of pressure, on the 28th, the first officer of the Thessaloniki disregarded Captain Gulandis' order and gave the command to the wireless operators himself. Once again, the Thessaloniki sent out an SOS message. There was mass confusion, though, caused by the message since it was sent out without giving an exact location where the ships receiving the message to go to effect a rescue. Soon, the message room of the Thessaloniki was filled with ships answering her, wanting to know where they needed to go. But these messages seemed to have gone unanswered to the frustration of all of the anxious captains in the area who were eager to come and help, as well as the family members of the passengers on board who had only heard that the ship their loved ones were on was in trouble, but no resolution. The first ship to reach the Thessaloniki was an American ship named Florizel and they offered to take off both the passengers and the crew and bring them to Bermuda. 
To their surprise, Captain Kulandis refused. Instead, they waited with the Florizel standing by in case of emergency until the Patrice, also a ship from the Greek line, arrived. Once the Patrice arrived, the Florizel continued on her voyage, since Captain Gulandis seemed reluctant to work with any ship from a different company. It was speculated due to a fear of salvage rights being claimed by any ship that came to help them. It had been a dangerous gamble with the passengers' lives, but they were all safely transferred to Patrice, though not without difficulty. The stormy weather had caused so many difficulties already, made the transfer of passengers between the Thessaloniki and the Patrice complex, and while they were able to get all the passengers safely to the Patrice in the end, the passengers were forced to leave behind all of their personal belongings and luggage. In the meantime, a United States revenue cutter named the Seneca also announced by wireless that they were speeding to the aid of the Thessaloniki in answer to the SOS message, but they were told that the Patrice was already on scene and their help would not be needed, so they turned back. There was still some hope that they would be able to save the Thessaloniki, and so a tow line was fired to the leaking ship, and the entire crew and Captain Gulandis remained on board of her. The Patrice did send them some drinking water, so they were no longer in as much danger as they were before. The Patrice began to try to tow the Thessaloniki to the safety of New York. This was a success through the night of January 1st, but through the night, the winds also picked up, and the morning of the 2nd, the tow line parted. The Patrice had not given up on the Thessaloniki, though, and on the afternoon of the 2nd, another line was sent to connect the two ships. Once more, they began to make their voyage to New York. January 3rd brought more misfortune. This time, both ships ran into a northeast gale, and in the middle of the accompanying darkness, howling winds, and blowing snow, the tow line between the ships parted once again. This time, the Thessaloniki was swiftly blown away from the Patrice by the storm, and drifted southeast faster than anyone could respond. The Thessaloniki was no longer able to move under her own power due to the water having flooded her engine and boiler rooms, and so she was not able to make any efforts herself to remain with the Patrice. The Patrice, meanwhile, sent a message via wireless to tell the Thessaloniki that she was looking for them and that they had not been abandoned. In the rough weather and darkness, though, the two ships missed each other. Though the Thessaloniki was without her engines, the ship's dynamo was still operational, and so they still had their wireless, but the wireless room was repeatedly flooded by the storm, and due to the weather, the signals that they were able to send out were weak. On the morning of the 4th of January, Captain Gulandis sent a message to the ship that was most likely closest, the United States of the Scandinavian-American Line asking if he could give the Thessaloniki a tow to New York. The United States replied that they could take off the 90 crew members still on the Thessaloniki, but that they could not tow the ship. Captain Gulandis now expressed via wireless message his willingness to abandon the Thessaloniki, and requested a ship to come to take off himself and his crew. 
They had drank almost all of the water left to them by the Patrice, and they only had bread to eat. The Patrice did what she could to reconnect with the drifting ship. Ships across the area also mobilized to answer the call for help from the Thessaloniki. Some ships that had been heading to New York changed course, including the United States, the American liner the Finland, and the Swedish ship the Stockholm, while the United States revenue cutter Seneca left port and once more headed out. What followed was confusion and frustration. The Thessaloniki sent out three different positions to her would-be rescuers of the course of the 4th, and the United States reported that she had visited all three of them, only to find that there was no ship. In total, the Thessaloniki's wireless messages for help would give six erroneous positions to the ships looking for her. The Patrice was also not communicating with the shore, for unknown reasons, meaning that, while other ships reported that the Greek line ship had all of the passengers from the Thessaloniki on board, they had no official confirmation from the ship in question herself. The search continued through the day of the 4th, and through the night into the 5th, with the only assurance that the Thessaloniki was still afloat coming from periodic wireless messages. These messages also conveyed desperation, though, and the would-be rescue ships sending instructions for the Thessaloniki to show as many lights as possible and fire rockets, and the Thessaloniki sending back messages telling the searching ships to come quickly. The weather was still very bad, and the Thessaloniki continued to take on water. The representatives of the Greek line in New York were questioned and expressed as much confusion over the actions of Captain Gulandis as everyone else. It was not their policy to turn away aid, refuse a tow offer, or risk their passengers, they said, no matter the concern of salvage fees that might be paid to another company. On the morning of the 5th of January, Another ship messaged the Thessaloniki that they were joining in the rescue. By late that morning, the anchor line ship, the Perugia, appeared on the horizon, having finally found the stricken steamer. The Perugia was able to send her boats over and bring the exhausted and starving crew of the Thessaloniki to safety. They did send out one last confusing message, however, telling the United States, which was still looking for them, that they were abandoning the Thessaloniki, but failing to mention the Perugia. Meaning, for a short while, there was the belief that the crew of the Thessaloniki was now in small boats on the stormy seas. On January 7th, the passengers of the Thessaloniki were safely landed in New York, with the crew on board the Perugia landing shortly after. Captain Gulandis had a lot of questions to answer. The largest one was why it was that he had sent the rescue ships in so many different directions with his incorrect positions of his ship. He could only say that, due to the storms, he had been unable to take accurate readings of the sun, and that his misdirections had not been intentional. It not lessened the frustrations of the many ships that had wasted precious time over the past few weeks due to the repeated mixed messages sent out by the Thessaloniki. The final words that were heard of the Thessaloniki 
was in 1920 in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. Soon after the abandonment of the Thessaloniki, the Greek line had requested a ruling of limited liability from the courts, and a finding that the ship had sank due to a storm and not due to their negligence. The initial court hearing refused, and found them liable for the loss of baggage and cargo, aggregating to the amount of $976,075.98. The reason for this finding was the judge's belief that the boilers had no longer been in seaworthy condition. The person who had inspected them for the company also had a share in the company, and due to the large amounts of money that could be requested to carry cargo due to the war, he felt as though the person inspecting the boilers had a financial motive to approve the ship making the trip even if the boilers were not in good condition. This finding was appealed and overturned in 1920. The leak did not seem to come from the boilers. The boilers had failed, it was true, but the problem had been the leak in the ship far more than the ship's boilers failing. The judge also called into question whether or not the Thessaloniki even needed to be abandoned, and speculated that if she had found a ship willing to tow her, she could have been saved. This was an error of judgment, he ruled, but not one that made the Greek line liable for the losses of the baggage and cargo. Out of everyone involved, the people most happy with the outcome of the sinking of the Thessaloniki were the writers of the wireless age who crowed over the use of wireless to keep the Thessaloniki in contact with those who came to her aid, and carefully ignored the chaos that those messages had caused for days along her course from Greece to New York. For more information, please see The Federal Reporter, Volume 267, published in 1921 by the West Publishing Company, or see our other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.